anything. Let's take our Bibles. Let's turn to Luke 12. Let me give a moment and explain what exactly it is that we're doing here. There's been a lot of confusion about the word repentance and what it means. A lot of this happened with the translation from Greek into Latin, which is commonly known as the Vulgate. And it's because of the dominance of Catholic thought at that time that wanted to take a word that means to change your mind, to become wise again, to think differently from that point forward. Uh, And I'll tell you what, I don't even have a, a problem with it meaning change your heart, because a lot of times in Scripture you'll read through, and when it talks about the heart there, it's not talking about the cardia that beats within your chest. It's really talking about what you're settled on as far as your understanding or convictions about something, and it likens it a lot of times to the mind. So I don't have an issue with that necessarily. My problem is that they decided at that time that they wanted to fill it with all of this emotional baggage and and pretty much this idea of a penance that needs to take place. And this is why the word is called repentance is because it comes from this penance attitude of incredible sorrow and contrition uh, over sin. You're like, well, shouldn't we feel bad about our sin? Yes, but that's not what the word means. The word doesn't mean that. And so what I'm wanting us to do is actually get invested in the text and ask the question, what does the Bible tell me about this word repentance? Where do I see it in its various context now there are 56 different instances in the new testament i don't know if you guys have realized this but in three sundays we've been able to knock out matthew and mark and a little bit of luke in dealing with it so you can go through this information pretty quickly okay five instances that we saw dealing with it in luke have already been covered i'm trying to take it slow and be selective to try to keep us on task uh, just just to work through it together. If you'll notice, you've got some sheets that are going to be at the end of your rows. We should have plenty to go around for everybody. If you don't have pens, let us know. We have a little bucket of pens up here. But my goal is to get everybody engaged in the text because of what we're going to be looking at today. So the idea of Luke and Acts, if you'll remember, that the, Luke is a doctor, and he was very meticulous in his gospel account. If we understand chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 correctly he is the one who wrote the most orderly account out of all of the gospel writers being a doctor he he examines a lot of details about a lot of things that the other gospel writers don't cover and so it's very advantageous for us to get a clear understanding if we were to read luke and acts back to back but what's interesting is is out of the 56 times that the idea of repent or repentance is used within the scriptures 23 of them come from Luke and Acts together. So he was a big fan of this word, used it repeatedly. Some interesting things that you'll find is that John never uses the word repentance. Not one time. Now I think it's important that we don't mistake because he doesn't use repentance that the idea of repentance was not going on. Remember, he's chronicling from a different perspective the same time of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. So if Jesus and John the Baptist's message going on there is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, you automatically know that it's going on during John's time. It's just that John chooses not to include that word as part of what he's dealing with. Now we know that John knows the word because when you get to Revelation, he uses it repeatedly. And he uses it in relation to churches that need to repent. And he uses it in relation also to unbelievers on the earth during the tribulation time that are refusing to repent so those are things that we would need to consider another interesting thing about the defense of the gospel 
in the book of Galatians is that Paul chooses never to use the word repent in that book either. So the epistle to the Galatians, you just don't find it there. So it's very interesting to see where the word doesn't occur and the critical issues that are at the forefront. Now, I think there's a big reason why that is. If you will have noticed so far, every instance of repentance that we've looked at in Matthew and Mark in the five different instances that we've seen in Luke so far are all directed towards one people, and that is the Jews. The message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you will remember, we see when the Pharisees and scribes come, he tells them, do works befitting repentance. Which means that repentance is not a work that someone would do. The work should come from a repentance that has taken place. If you look at the Luke account in Luke 3 that I asked you to read for yourself a couple of Sundays ago, you will notice there that some people actually come with humility and they say, what work should we do? And he says, if you've got two tunics, give somebody one. If you've got more food than what you need, give somebody some. If you're a tax collector, stop taking more money than what you're mandated to. Stop taking advantage of people. These are works that are befitting repentance. If repentance has taken place in someone's life, this is what an outflow of that looks like practically speaking for you. But it's all directed in a Jewish manner. Now, since we have such small crowd today, let me ask you this. Are there any questions before we move forward? You guys are too easy. Too easy. <clears throat> so here's what we're looking at today. We're starting in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, parts of it that we're looking for. Um, I was going to take you to two different places. I'm not looking to get crazy with it. And I don't want this to be very long. Here's the reason why. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that if I give you too much that's going on with this word and everything, it's just going to get more confusing than it is to get us critically thinking and focusing on one thing. And I'm thankful that Emily lets me know. That was a lot. That was a lot of stuff. We need to back it off some. So she's a very good barometer for me. So if you ever have any complaints about me, go to Emily first. And then Emily will, will, will sit down and she'll try to word it in such a way where I'm like, yeah, maybe I want to consider that. And so anyway, <laughs> what's that? Please don't do that. Her inbox will be full. Let's talk about this. Not only are we discussing the use of a word in the scriptures, but I think it's important for us to talk about having sound understanding of what we're dealing with. If you need to write this down, write it down. If you wouldn't mind putting it at the top of your paper, I want you to write something real simple. Context is key. K-E-Y. Context is key. Any hermeneutics book, that's the art and science of Bible interpretation, any hermeneutics book that you would ever pick up is worth its grain of salt, is worth its weight in salt, whatever that phrase is, okay? It, you know that it's worth something if it emphasizes the importance of context. And you can never afford dealing with any passage in just a verse by itself or just a paragraph by itself. You always need to know what's going on before it, what's going on after it, you need to know what the trees are, yes. But you have got to be able to navigate the forest. It is so important in Bible study. I'm going to give you some instances why that's so important today. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the importance of context. What is the context leading into Luke 13, which is our main part of the chapter? Well, if you wouldn't mind just to buzz through chapter 12 with me real quick and look maybe. If you turn to chapter 12, it's where I asked you to turn in your Bibles there. We would just look through this quickly here 
You'll notice that chapter 12 is a pretty long chapter. If you're familiar with other gospel accounts, you're going to find, okay, this has got overlap here in Mark. This has got overlap here in Matthew. You might even find a little bit of overlap in what's going on in some of John's stuff. But if you'll notice and you'll walk through this, chapter 12, verse 1, it's very interesting because we have this understanding of he began saying to his disciples. So every time you see something like that, Luke is putting an audience in front of you. It's really important. I am going to talk to Zach in a very different way than I talk to my wife. You see what I'm saying? And it's very important for you to know if something's coming out or a conversation that you need to examine in a narrative that's, that's outpoured for you, that's being laid out for you. Who's talking and who are they talking to? It's very important. Notice the crux issue that's going on there in chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. He began in the middle of the verse. He began saying to his disciples, there is your audience. Of course, it's Jesus talking. First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. They're teaching something that is not right. And that's kind of where he sets off uh, for this whole situation. And then he goes into a very long patches of teaching about not worrying, not worrying. Do not worry about this. Don't worry about what people are going to do to you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. He goes through and deals with all of that, and he always connects it to an eternal perspective. He always connects it for that. If you would skip down just a little bit more, look at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, again, here's the audience. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your life, what you'll eat. Verse 23, life is more than food. The body's more than clothing. If you go all the way down to verse uh, 31, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. The kingdom is the focus of what's going on in Jesus's earthly ministry here. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Speaking to his apostles still. Look at verse 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. And and, and And he's encouraging them, always be looking for when the Messiah is going to institute this kingdom. And this is one of the most critical things we have to understand. In the gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly life, he is talking primarily, overwhelmingly, to Jewish people about the fact that he is the Messiah and that the kingdom is ready to come on earth. He will bring it to the earth if they will nationally believe in him as their promised Messiah overwhelmingly that is what the gospels are about the mistake that is made often is that people look at this and they'll see a passage like we're going to look at and they'll go oh if that doesn't happen you're not going to go to heaven when you die and they've taken a pre-existing thought or a pre-existing baggage and they have brought it into a text that has absolutely nothing to do about that so hopefully we'll see how that can unfold look at verse 37 real quick i'm just giving you some prep stuff blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes truly i say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them guys that is one of the most fascinating verses i've ever understood in the bible because it talks about for those who are ready and prepared for his coming And right now it's talking about Jews. I believe this possibility is made available to the church. We can debate that later uh, afterwards. But I think Matthew 21, 43 gives us that permission to look at what happens because of the Jewish rejection of their king. But it's the idea that for those who he finds ready to receive him, he is actually going to put an apron around his waist and Jesus is going to personally serve faithful 
saints. That's incredible to me. That's incredible. I mean, has he not already served us by dying on the cross? That's a pretty big deal. You think, Jesus, why would you want to do more? Here's the reason why. Because God is a gracious giver. And that's what he loves to do. And he's not threatened by any of that. He loves giving to us. That's insane to me. Because I sit back and I'm like, but I don't deserve it. And that's when Jesus is like, that's because it's grace, right? And you say, praise God, that's good. I love that. So fantastic stuff. So notice he goes down, goes down. Uh, let me see here. Verse 49 is pretty important to understand. Uh, remember, get rid of 60s hippie Hallmark Jesus, okay? He's, he's, he's not there all the time, okay? It's, it's just not how we fit our ideology. Verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. That's a pretty strong statement. How I already wish that the fire was on its way. But I have a baptism to undergo. I have to be fully immersed in something. He's not talking about water here. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Everybody knows that this is the cross. In fact, if you remember, if you remember James and John, go to their mom and they say, Mom, will you go with us and ask Jesus if we can be special people to him? Everybody remember that? And the other ten are like, who do these guys think they are? He's like, will you give my boys the opportunity to sit on your right hand and your left? Remember, Jesus says, woman, you don't know what you're asking. Can they drink of the cup that I need to drink of, which is death? You know, can they be baptized in the baptism that I'm going to be baptized in? And he uses that in order to illustrate, I'm going to be so fully immersed in persecution. Can they handle that? Because for the privilege of somebody to sit on my right and left, they have to handle that. Their, cause, their, their desire to live for me has to be such to allow them to endure and persevere through persecution. It is a place of reward and privilege. It doesn't mean just go to heaven when you die. That's not the case. So notice he says, verse 51, do you suppose I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. And he says, five members in the house will be against one another. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. You're like, that's already going on now. That's not a familiar this pa- a fulfillment of this passage. That's a joke. Thank you guys for not laughing. All right. <clears throat> and now we're going to pick up with an immediate context before we get to our paper, okay? Now watch this. And he was also saying to the crowds, now here's the reason why you want to know that. And if you want to write this in your Bible, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. This is your audience. I'm using green today to see how well it shows up. Livestream people, if you could, if you could uh, just message in a little bit and let us know if the, the green looks better than the blue, that would be helpful. Notice what he says. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. Hey, look, there's a cloud coming from the west. It's going to rain. Notice what it says. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be a hot day. And it turns out that way. And Jesus doesn't say, you amazing meteorologists. He doesn't say that, does he? You what? You hypocrites, why? You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Do you not recognize what's going on in your first century day and age, Israel? I'm the Messiah, and I'm here. And you're not coming to terms with it. Look what he says after that. Why do you, sorry, why do you not even on your own initiative, notice, everybody see this? This is important. Why? Because it means one thing that is all throughout the Bible. Personal responsibility. There's an I in there somewhere. 
There we go. Personal responsibility. There was an expectation to respond. If Jesus is going to manifest himself, if he's going to do miracles, if he's going to heal people, if he's even going to raise the dead and do something in what we might consider uh, as simple as sit down and take the time to teach people things that they've never heard before. There is a mandate to respond. And people were not responding. How come you don't judge what is right? Notice he gives you this. Here's your causal conjunction. Remember this. Four. Based off that statement. While you're going with your opponent... Now here's what's interesting. Who is the Jews' opponent at this time? Do we know? Anybody know? No? That's their earthly opponent. Let, let me ask, back up for just a second. In this context, is Jesus happy or is he sad? What is he? He's what? He's angry. So who's their opponent right now? God is. It's God. It's not the devil. While you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, notice, there's going to come a time to where you're going to have to give an account. Why are you not utilizing the time now? Why is it, you can, why is it that you're really good in your meteorology, but you're really terrible in your theology? Why is that going on? Your theology should trump your meteorology every time. So what? It's going to rain. Your king is here. Recognize. Okay? So notice, your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him why so that here's your reason he may not drag you before the judge judgment right and turn you over to the officer not good and the officer throw you into prison why is that so bad i say to you you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent now is he talking about going to trial and being held accountable he's not talking about that kind of stuff what he's talking about is if you would just recognize the present time of what's at stake. And he's trying to use an earthly picture in order to communicate to them what's divinely taking place. Right now, you are at odds with God. And you think that upkeeping the law of Moses is what makes you okay. You think that doing the things of the Pharisees makes you okay. And they're hypocrites. So they're not doing anything to help you out. But what you're not doing, even though you're knowledgeable of the Scriptures, you're not recognizing that your king has shown up. Did they all know that he was a king? Yes, they did. Because if they had somebody that was sick in their household, they were dragging that person there so that he could touch them so that they would be healed. Of course they know who he is. Some people even start, could this be the one that David prophesied about? Yes. Could this be the prophet that Moses was talking Yes. Could this be the one spoken of in Isaiah? Absolutely. It can be. And if it can be, then shouldn't that realization of what they're expected to come to make a difference in their lives? Now let's pause for a second and put that, that Jewish perspective on a shelf and let's talk about for today to understand this. Do you realize that we have such an incredible privilege as the church, such incredible privileges as the Bible, such incredible things as spiritual gifts, people that are able to teach, opportunities to serve, people that need serving, people that need to hear the gospel, people that need to be discipled. And in all of this situation, sometimes we put our hands in our pockets and we say, there's nothing to do. We suffer from an incredible lackadaisical malaise in the American church. Do we not see outside that everything is coming to a head? What is God expecting of us? You've got to answer that. Only you know how the Lord is talking to you. 
Only you understand what the Lord has placed on your heart. I'm telling you, I've seen it time and time again where people have squandered. I know a guy right now, his life is in absolute shambles. He told me 15 years ago he was called to preach. He never answered that call. And he has made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision after destroyed marriage after destroyed marriage one another. Why? I guarantee it's because when the Lord laid upon his heart, you are to preach my word. He said no. What is God calling you to do? Because there will come a day of accountability. And that day of accountability before the Lord is not going to determine whether you go to heaven and hell. You're going to heaven based on your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ now. The question is going to be, how did you do while you were a believer? Were you faithful? Did you live for my glory or did you live for yourself? Who did you love? Why did you not esteem my word as true? You took it as opinion or advice, but not as the God-breathed word. We've got to answer that. We've got to come to terms with that. We have to be faithful. Everybody needs to be faithful. We are in the time that's calling for it now. Now back to this. Now we get into our page. What is the previous context? Let me just give you a rundown. If, if you were to go home and read 12 on your own, <clears throat> try to sum it up in a few sentences. That's what I did. Here's what I came up with. The Jews could discern the clouds, rain, and wind and predict their day's climate, but they would not recognize that the Messiah was present. They were not coming to terms with their opponent so as to secure their freedom. They were just really happy being religious. Man, that's a scary place to be. So now we step into chapter 13, verse 1. And this is where we're going to deal with two instances of repentance. And in order to understand it properly, we've got to get the context. Context is what? Key. Yes, I love it. Man, with less people here, I've got more of a response I do when this place is full. That's good. Excellent. So here we go. Now, on the same occasion, which tells you, along with the same audience, teaching in other words think of it this way one of the best things you, i know i say this a lot one of the best things that you could ever do if you were reading through this together is to get rid of this don't worry about 13.1 don't let your mind do the end sometime later or at another time or this is another event don't do that it's all one continuous thing now on the same occasion there were some present okay now this is interesting who reported to him who's him jesus about the Galileans, Galileans are from the north, right? That's where the Sea of Galilee is. Whose blood Pilate, right? Pilate is bad guy. No. There we go. Bad guy. Write that in. Won't hurt you. Had mixed, and this word actually is probably better translated. You can look at it in your, in your um, marginal notes that you had. It says shed along with. Uh, might mean uh, some translations have mingled with their sacrifices. Now, stop, because there's a lot going on in this verse that we need to critically think about. Okay? Number one, this is information here that is coming from some people to Jesus. They're bringing news to Him about an event that took place. Now, here's what this tells you. Number one, Jesus... Um, 
I don't want to say didn't know it, then you get into the omniscience argument there, okay? Wasn't present for this. Okay? Jesus wasn't there. That's why they felt compelled to need to tell him. Does everybody see that? If you came to tell me some news about something, you probably got a lot of question marks about whether or not I was there and whether or not I already knew this. Notice that Jesus doesn't respond and go, yeah, I remember those guys. Yeah, I saw that happen. Man, that was terrible. He doesn't say any of that. They're bringing him something that they think that he doesn't know because he obviously wasn't there presently. You say, why does that matter? Stick with me. I'm going to show you why, okay? Notice they reported him about Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. This is the number two point we need to have with their sacrifices. Let me ask you a question. Where did Jews sacrifice? The temple. Where's the temple? Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem located geographically speaking? South of Galilee. So remember you got Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Which means that these Galileans had come all the way down to do sacrifices in Jerusalem. Okay? Now this is important because it's happening in the temple. What happened? These people came to sacrifice, offer the proper sacrifices, which means they were there during a certain feast that was taking place. Whether it was tabernacles, whether it was Passover, whether it was Pentecost. They were there at one of the three feasts that took place at that time because those three feasts are the ones who call all the Jews to come together and to gather in one place to celebrate those things. Pilate slaughtered these people and took their sacrifices and took their own blood and mingled it together. This is why he was not liked by these people. And what could they do? They're just oppressed because the Romans rule everything. Does everybody see in one verse we've gained a lot of information? Everybody see that? So notice, Jesus, this situation happened. It's horrible. This is terrible. And Jesus said to them, now watch this. Question. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate. Now here's what this tells us. Because they died horrifically, are you saying that God made sure and took them out in a harsh way? Is that what God does? You know what? You've sinned more than other people. I'm pretty sure we're going to have to have a terrible death for you. No. Notice that Jesus is refuting the idea of just because you've sinned greatly, Obviously, a tragedy that's happened in your life is because somebody had great sin. Jesus says that's not the way it works. Even the death of Ananias and Sapphira was merciful, okay? Did they sin in a huge way? Yes. Was God putting up with it? No. Did they die instantly and fall at their feet? Yes. But notice they weren't in like a terrible, terrible, terrible situation. Everybody see that? They died. God would get, that sends home the point well enough, I think, in that situation. If we were all there, you know, Zach came in and dead we'd all be like whoa enough to leave an impact okay so notice it doesn't have to be something horrific in order to really count or to emphasize how bad zach's sin is love you between you and jesus okay but notice to suffer their fate here's jesus's answer i tell you no now here is where everybody takes a bus out into left field okay but unless you who's this well, these Galileans, other Galileans, and also back up there, those Galileans who are giving them the news, right? But unless you do what? Here's our word. Repent. You will all likewise perish. 
See, Jesus is really clear. If you don't repent, you'll go to hell. Is that in this context? Not at all. Yeah, you would be amazed. Commentary after commentary after commentary. Jesus is saying you're worried about earthly things. You ought to be thinking about heavenly things. And if you're not willing to repent, you're going to go to hell when you die. Over and over and over and over and over. That's not the context. That's not the preceding context. What is the preceding context telling them about? Somebody share it with me. What's the emphasis of Jesus' earthly ministry? The what? The kingdom. The kingdom is His earthly ministry. Got to keep that in mind walking into this situation. So notice this first instance, the Galileans bring this to them, okay? Now, look how this moves forward. Now Jesus is going to bring up an instance to them. Or, do you suppose that those 18 whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Speaking about a local event. Now, if you did some biblical research, you said, you know what, Tower of Siloam, that seems pretty important. And you would look at it, you're going to find very little stuff about it. Okay, Nobody chronicled this anywhere else. Nobody documented the thing going on with Pilate and mingling their blood with their sacrifices anywhere else. You just don't find this record of information. You'll find that there's a pool of Siloam. It's located in Jerusalem. And chances are this was an old tower that was there. Probably because of age, maybe it fell over. Nobody really knows. But Jesus, since he's telling us this, we know he's telling us the truth. Why? Jesus don't lie. That's a good thing. Remember that. If you don't remember any other application, Jesus is not going to lie to you, okay? But grasp this, okay? It fell over on people. Do you think they were worst people? Were they? No. That's a question he brings up. Do you think they were, they were as bad as any other men? You think everybody else was good and they were the only ones that were bad? Notice he repeats it again. Here's his answer. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now here's the question. Is Jesus saying, unless you have an incredible anguish for your sin... Turn away from all of it, never to commit it again. And promise to live a righteous life that desires to obey and receive and embrace Christ at all costs. That a tower is going to fall on you. Is that what he's saying? No. Notice it has nothing to do with this. And yet, if we were to believe how this Catholic understanding of repentance has infiltrated the church, it has done a really good job. Because I have quote after quote after quote after quote of messed up definitions of repentance that well-known Bible scholars, some of them you would know their names, no problem, preachers, whatever, about all of it is this heartfelt, emotional, going through the rigor about what it is to truly repent. I actually heard a guy at a conference one time that deals with drug abusers. He said, yeah, I work with them on these things, but after six months, if they're not on the right path, they didn't experience true repentance. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought differently about something and failed to follow through to do it? That ever happened for you? Yeah, I've done it too. Why? Because I'm human. And the word repentance means to change your mind, to have a change of mind about something. And sometimes we're fickle and we don't always follow through with the convictions that we have because we're sinful. So notice, he's talking about here that the fact that their minds need to be changed. Now, minds need to be changed about what? What is the subject? Obviously, death is on the table. That's pretty important. Notice that Jesus squashes the idea of there being any sort of hierarchy of sin. Well, if your sin is great, then your death is great. 
Notice that he squashes all that. But why does he say no one is exempt from this situation unless this happens? All of you are going to end up in the same way. Perish. Why? Do we know? What does he mean by it? The amazing thing is is that context doesn't just have a beginning to it. You also keep reading past the point of where you're concerned. Watch how this works, okay? I want to give this to you. You don't have to write this down. You can look at it later. A really good book. This is by Roy Zuck. It's called Basic Bible Interpretation because we are getting ready to deal with, and here's what Jesus does in order to help us out, a parable, okay? Jesus just gave these statements, and you're like, whoa, man, Jesus is pretty abrasive, but I'm not for sure where he's coming at from it. One thing that we can pretty much agree on is he's not talking about people going to heaven when they die because they believed in Jesus Christ for the death and resurrection. That's not on the table here. That's not what we're dealing with. We know that his audience is primarily Jewish. We know that it has to surround itself with the idea of sacrifices at the temple, tragedies that have happened, sin is the issue. But his prescription across the board is unless you repent, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Keep reading the parable. Let me explain this to you in figurative language. Let me paint a picture with you. Now notice, the word parable comes from the Greek para, which means beside or alongside. And bailin means to throw, or some people have said uh, to cast is the idea. This, thus the story is thrown alongside the truth to illustrate the truth. Here's what I'm talking about. Here is a story to help you understand it even more. If you're confused by my plain words, then hopefully I can have a spiritual Bob Ross picture that's going to draw you right into the happy little trees is the idea. Everybody with it? Okay. Trying to connect with you here. So, hearers and readers, by sensing the comparison or analogy between the story and their own situation, are prodded to think. This is Jesus' point. When he stops, when he gives you some abrasive statement, and it says, and he told them a parable saying this. Jesus is saying, I want you to hunker down and to think. Use your brain. Get in the text and think critically about what's unfolding here. In interpreting parables, we need to ask, what is the point of the story? What spiritual truth is being illustrated? What analogy is being made? Seems pretty clear, right? Seems pretty simple. So the question is, is, How does what we're going to see in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 connect to verses 1 through 5? Well, let's do this real quick. Let's read through 1 through 5 again. Everybody look at your pages. We're just going to read through it. I'm not really going to show you on the screen. Here we go. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Failure to heed, failure to repent, will reap this condition of perishing. Now watch this, okay? And he began telling them this. Anytime that you see this right here, the Holy Spirit just helped you a ton. 
okay? Because the Holy Spirit has defined for you in the text the genre in which you're dealing with. Gospels are primarily narrative because it's unfolding the story, the historical account of Jesus and how he's walking amongst people, who he's dealing with, where he's at, who he's talking to, what he taught and all that. But when you get into this situation within the narrative and it's like, okay, here's a parable. You know that you need to pay attention because Jesus is going to paint a picture to set alongside the truth so that this truth becomes so clear to you that it doesn't leave you. That's what he wants to do. Now watch this. A man, this is guy number one, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, okay? So notice that the man owns a vineyard. And he came looking for fruit. Here's his purpose here. He came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. Here's the result. Now notice that the result is not because of the man's involvement. The result is that fruit should be there and it's not. Everybody see that? Yes? Everybody with me? Who's asleep? Okay, making sure. Everybody needs to drink more coffee. Here we go. Ooh, that's cold and gross. Okay. And he said, now watch this. Guy number one. To the vineyard keeper. Person number two. There's conversation going on. Here's what he says. Behold. Now anytime you see the word behold in Scripture... Think of that instance whenever Lucy goes to the mound in Charlie Brown and grabs him by the shirt collar and shakes him so hard that he's got three eyeballs rolling around. Just think of that. Behold! It's meant to get your attention, okay? Behold, for, pay attention to this, three years, pay attention, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. This is timing. Or as some of you will remember sometimes what I do to the text is I just draw little clock hands. It's timing for three years. This point in the parable is very, very important. Notice what he says here. Cut it down. I've come for three years, no fruit. It's useless. Cut it down. Be done with it. Now watch this. Why does it even use up the ground? If it's not going to do what it's supposed to do, why even allow it to be here in the midst of the vineyard that is prospering all around it? Okay? Look at this. And he, this is vineyard keeper guy, number two, answered and said to him, number one, the man who owns the vineyard and who had the fig tree planted in the vineyard, let it alone. Sir, (laughs) got to be respectful, right? For, here's an explanation of why he should leave it alone. This year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, which was odd because fig trees don't usually use fertilizer. But notice the point is, is we're going to dig around it. Why? So we can put water in a trench there. It can soak it up really good. We're going to put fertilizer all over it in order to encourage the best possible growth. We're going to inundate it with No excuses as to why it can't bring forth fruit in some way. Everybody see that? But notice what it also says here. Everybody see this? Timing language. This year too. What year is that? Three plus one is? This is year four. 
until I dig around and put in fertilizer. And if, notice that there's a variable there, a condition, a possibility. If it bears fruit next year, when is next year? Year four. No, it's year four. Remember, he's talking about him at the end of year three. I'm going to do this to it. And if after this next year, it does it, that's the year four. Fine. Or so be it. But if not, if not, notice how these go together here. If not, then notice the vineyard keeper comes to the same conclusion that the man does who owns the vineyard and plants the fig tree. Now some of you might say, I don't know that that helps me get any clearer on this. Okay, let's back up a little bit. He began a parable. Here's the truth alongside. A man... Jesus, or no, you know what? No, it is Jesus. Had a fig tree. Fig trees in Scripture, anytime that you see them, you see a pattern. They are representative of people groups or nations. In particular, in the Gospels, you find that a fig tree is always likened to Israel. Okay? He began to tell this parable, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. What is the vineyard? The world. Isn't it all his? Isn't it all his? Yes? Is a fig tree an opposing tree? You never hear that. Whoa, that's a fierce fig tree. You never hear that, do you? You never hear that. But notice what he's done in all of what he owns. He decided to plant a fig tree here. Now here's what's interesting. You go to Leviticus 19, 23-25, and you will read that any time a tree was planted like that, <clears throat> you let the first, second years go as far as fruit. It's in the midst of developing. It's in the midst of growing. Fruit's not going to be very well at all. But in the third year, you should be totally expecting of fruit popping up, and you should be able to take of it in that year. Okay? Now, that's very interesting because, notice, you can say, oh, well, all he's talking about here is just the fact that the fig tree needed more time to grow. Notice that when he comes after three years, it should have something useful. Does everybody see that? If Israel is the fig tree, Israel should be showing some fruit. What is the big message going on? What's the message of Jesus' ministry? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of the heavens. God's righteous rule over the earth, right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth because it's not being done on earth as it is in heaven. The rule of the heavens on earth is what the whole idea is about. The Messiah bringing this rule. So notice here in this situation, Israel's not bearing fruit when they should have. Why? Does anybody want to take a guess how long Jesus has been ministering at this point when he gave this parable? Three years. You say, well, wait a second. I thought Jesus' earthly ministry was only three years. No. I have out in the lobby about 12, 15 copies of this little paper. I've copied this out of a book called Jesus Christ, The Greatest Life. Its, its title in the 70s was The Life of Christ in Stereo. If that dates it any for you. But it's by a man named Johnston Cheney. His story by itself is miraculous. We don't have time for it right now. But he actually went through and he has created the only harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that did not need to add a word or take away a word in order for it to succinctly work. It is truly an incredible book. And at the end there, he says there's a lot of people think that Jesus only 
only lasted in ministry, earthly speaking, for three years, maybe three and a half years, they kind of push it. He said, no, the fact is a fourth year. How do you know that? Because three of the Passover festivals that were taken care of are documented clearly in John, yet what did we see at the beginning of our text? Didn't they come and talk to him about an event where he must have not been present and they felt like they needed him to know? That means that there was a feast event that he missed. You know what that is? It's a fourth feast event. So that tells you that his ministry was in four years. Now, in seven pages, they line this out, and I'm sure only you nerdy folk will find this beneficial and and look at it, but it's a very interesting read in order to prove this point. The earthly ministry of Jesus was for four years. And so notice, he came looking for fruit. Why? Because there was an expectation that it should be there, and they did not find any. Israel should have some fruit by now. What's going on? Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus give them every reason to believe that he was their king? You see what I'm saying? How is it that they don't get it? Oh, it's going to rain today? That's great. Who's your king? Oh, it's going to be a hot wind? Okay, who's your king? Everybody see how messed up this is? So notice, he said to the vineyard keeper, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know who that is. Could be angels. Could be those that are superior to angels, but under the headship of God. Sons of God, I don't know. Behold, for three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree. Who's that again? Israel, the Jews, keep context together. There's an E in there somewhere. Without finding any, none. What is this? Judgment. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? What's the purpose of it being here if it's not going to respond how it should be responding now? There's not a point in it. Notice that there is mercy. It is the mercy of God that is being beseeched at. Let it alone, sir, for this year too, for a fourth year of ministry until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, okay? Increased provision. Now, how would we know that? Well, here's the thing. If you read from Luke 13 to the end of Luke 18, you really are dealing with the last year of Jesus' ministry. Take a look at all the amazing things that Jesus does in that time. It's truly profound. We're going to see some of it next, next week. And if it bears fruit, now notice, the result that should be had next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Let me ask you a question. If Israel bears fruit after that fourth year of ministry, what does happen? Jesus would establish the kingdom. Would He still have to die for sins? Yeah, He would, because our sins need to be paid for perfectly. That would have to happen but he would come in and he would actually set up the kingdom. He would introduce the thousand-year reign of Christ at that moment. If they repent to that, if they repent nationally and recognize that Jesus is their Messiah, great! It's good for everyone. But if not, cut it down. Possibly. But, But with a parable, I can't be that precise on it. Possibly. 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 She said, could this possibly be the idea of a discussion that's happening between the Father and the Son? It could, but remember this. Parables are often hypothetical things. It's not like this literally happened, it took place. Hey, here's a conversation that I know about that I had with my dad that you don't know, but I'm going to tell you. He doesn't do that, okay? It's not really handled that way, but he's illustrating it. Now, think back to what we've looked at previously. All of these sermons are connected together because we're dealing with this continuity of repentance. Everybody remember this one? This is John the Baptist. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Everybody remember that? Does that sound familiar with what we're dealing with? 
Same book, same author. If we just read it in context, the context may be the entire book, and that's okay. But if we just follow where the author and the divine author, the Holy Spirit's trying to take us, a lot of things start clearing up pretty quickly. It's laid at the root of the tree. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is, there's the judgment, cut down and thrown into the fire. Does anybody remember what happened to Israel after they crucified their king? Here's another interesting place. You can turn here in your Bible if you want, or you can look on the screen. Luke 19. Now this is after 18, so this is getting into the very end of his ministry. Jesus has now had this year. He can look back on it. He can give an evaluation. Look what he says. When he approached Jerusalem, wasn't this the issue before? And sometimes Luke uses Jerusalem to speak of Israel as a whole. He saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. What does Romans 11 tell us? There's a partial hardening over the Jews. Why? Because when the Messiah showed up, they didn't welcome a kingdom of peace and righteousness. They killed him so that they could keep being religious. Look what he says. For the days will come, future at this point, upon you, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. Romans. And surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground. Jesus, look how great the temple is. I tell you the truth. Not one stone is going to stand upon another. Why is that? Because when the Romans came in to begin destroying Jerusalem, the Jews freaked out and they cast fire into their own temple to begin melting all the records and everything and the inside of the temple is lined with gold. And so when you have that heat happen and all that gold begins to get real ooey gooey and drippy, it all goes in between all the bricks and the Romans who are pillaging everything decide to undo the temple brick for brick so they can scrape out all the gold for themselves that was lining the temple. Get my way, pins. They took it all for themselves, just as Jesus predicted it was going to happen. But wait a second. This is just a physical representation of a judgment that took place. What is the overarching theme of Jesus' ministry? The what? The kingdom. They're actually forfeiting the kingdom here. Notice it says, they will level you to the ground and your children with you. Notice it's going to be generational. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because, very important, here's the reason, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Who came to visit? Jesus, the Messiah. 39 books promising you. You didn't. You didn't listen. You didn't hear. Do you guys see that this is way beyond unbelief? It's way beyond unbelief. It's not just, I don't think it's true. It's, I don't want to think that it's true. So what is he telling them to repent for? The fact that their thinking has got to be changed if Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. Do you realize that that condition still stands today? The condition is still there today. How do we know that? Because during the tribulation time, do a word study. Gospel of the kingdom. That is going to be what's preached in the tribulation. The gospel of 
the kingdom. The righteous rule of God coming to roost on earth in its full splendor with Christ as the king who sits on the throne and faithful believers are going to be those who will rule and reign alongside him with responsibility. It is going to be an incredible time and they forfeited this. And because they forfeited this, I personally believe, and there's some debate on this, but I personally believe that he has given the church the opportunity right now to manifest fruits that would resemble what would look like the kingdom. Do I believe the kingdom he is here now? If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that I absolutely don't believe that. But here's the thing. We see this unbelief situation going on now. And it makes it all the more reason why we need to be faithful. Let me show you an interesting picture. I thought this was a really interesting picture. Everybody see this? Look what it says, what he's got on his hand. If Jesus returns, kill him again. This is the world. You know what I respect about this man? He's blatant enough to say it. This is how he truly feels about the idea. You check out their website. It's all trashing religion, 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 religion. The man is lacking a relationship with the Savior of his soul. This is a type of unbelief. This is rampant. Yeah, he believes in Jesus. See, that's the interesting thing about it. If he comes, notice he has, an, he has some theology about the second coming. But notice what he wants to happen when it takes place. Yes. This is everywhere. Now, I know that none of you out here are metal music fans, okay? But there's a band that's been around for years called Slayer. Anybody ever heard of Slayer? Okay. Uh, some, some of their uh, albums are South of Heaven, Rain and Blood, uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, they're, they're just satanic to the core. Pentagrams and everything, just, just gross stuff. You read a lot of their lyrics and you listen to interviews from those guys, they're just mad at Catholics for not being faithful to the Word. That's really what it boils down to. And it's created this amazing outpouring of just unbelief, 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 unbelief. And people are dying for an eternity because of this situation. And you say, well, how are we supposed to connect the message that we're dealing with? Understand this. Right now, you and I have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We have reservation there. We have a place there. The message of the kingdom has passed off the scene for the Jews. They're on the back burner of history right now. So understand, the time that we live now in faithfulness is critical. Because if this is how Jesus lined out His plan at this time, and this very basic study of repentance is going to lead us to have to start thinking about the end time, the end of the judgment, what the rapture is going to look like, the church's place in history, all of this type of stuff, and what it's going to look like in eternity. Then what it says is that every minute of it matters. You and I have a responsibility. No matter where you work, no matter who your friends are, but there has to be some conversations about Jesus that are taking place. Why? Because people need to know, and if you haven't noticed outside, they're clamoring for the answer that we have to give them. They're clamoring for it. All of them need to be loved divinely so yeah we need to talk to him about the expectation of his kingdom i'm excited about it but i tell you what i hope there's not one person you can think of in your mind and heart right now that you don't want to be there with you pray about it let's pray jesus i pray please that you would bring to our minds and our hearts the people that we know in our lives that need to understand about the return of the lord to take us unto himself and that there will be seven years of incredible incredible tribulation that take place on this earth father how that needs to motivate us soundly and father i pray that we would learn this lesson 
from the Jewish people that even though they had their king right in front of their eyes, they were still unresponsive. They were still bearing no fruit. They still weren't living in such a way as reflecting the seriousness of the truth before their eyes. God, thank You that You give to us this responsibility to tell the world about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the beauty of eternal life, the fact that we can actually live in peace because Jesus has given us peace. Father, we need burdened hearts. This is a day of urgency. It is not a day of sitting on our hands and just doing nothing. It is a time to be using the most of what you've given to us for your glory. So Lord, please move upon our hearts and minds now. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.